Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lostz. I am the designer relations developer for Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am very excited today because I have been getting a barrage of questions that I just can't answer. I'm a rock and roll LD guy who uh, loves to talk about lighting and making people happy and smile and dance and drink. And, and I know that I've done a great job when bar sales are through the roof. And that's, that's basically where I exist. That's the, the level that I exist on. And so people will ask me these things because I, I have a voice in the industry and I, I don't want to let them down. So part of what I do is I reach out to people who know way more than me and they're on a, a different plane of the industry than I am. And today I, I, I struck gold. I'm very excited to be able to talk to Steve Edelman. He is the head of Edelman Law Group and vice president of the Event Safety Alliance. He has a much uh, more in-depth insight on a lot of these questions. So hopefully we can get some of these questions answered from somebody who knows the answers. Thank you so much for joining me today, Steve. I really appreciate it. No, you're welcome, Chris. Uh, if you can kind of fill me in on how you got into our industry and uh, and why, you, why you're so supportive of us. Yeah, I, I was a litigator many years ago. So I'm a lawyer and I was just an ordinary litigator when a case landed on my desk involving a young man who went to a big rock and roll festival and he was in a GA crowd near the stage. And when the headline artist took the stage, the crowd you know, the occupant load increased, the crowd got more and more densely packed till he couldn't control his own body weight anymore. He got knocked over, other kids landed on his chest. He suffered compressive asphyxia and almost died. And that was by far the most interesting lawsuit I had ever worked on. And so I really geeked out on all the operational details of running big festivals. And I started talking about my M&M case and People to whom I told that story sometimes would say, gee, Steve, you seem to know something about our industry, about the operational details, about how we put on events. And my lawyer never gets his ass out of the office. Maybe you could help me instead of that guy. (laughs) And literally, that's how a practice was born. Then when the Event Safety Alliance was created by our founder and president, Jim Digby, you know. Jim had been a student of mine at the Academy for Venue Safety and Security. So we knew each other and we wound up in the same green rooms in the months right after the Indiana State Fair stage roof collapse in 2011. And so when Jim came up with the idea of forming a new entity dedicated to safety and security at live events, I was in the same place, we were on the same page And so Jim became our founding president and I became ESA's vice president. And that's how it's been for the last eight or nine years. Thank you so much. We, we really need it up until about 
20, even 15 years ago, we were just a band of merry pirates traveling around the world. And we, we never had to deal with anything like that because it was either we pretended it didn't exist or it just, it never made it to litigation. It was just, yeah, you were in a mosh pit. You should have been more careful, but that's not the case anymore. It doesn't, ex- that, that world doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and, you know, ESA's motto, life safety first, is intended to be a cultural shift from the old one, which is the show must go on. Well, not always. Sometimes the show shouldn't go on, or at least it shouldn't go on right as scheduled, or, you know, when, when somebody wants to put it on. And, you know, we know that people have different sensitivity to safety concerns, but there are some safety concerns that really should call for either a pause or show stop entirely. So ESA is really focused on trying to raise the level of awareness among event professionals to the importance of health and safety. Because after all, if we're sick, if we're hurt, if we're dead, we're not going to shows, we're not creating shows, we're not you know, hanging lights and speakers and getting on tour buses. Our health is important, physical and mental health, they're all important. So that's ESA's wheelhouse. If somebody gets hurt at a concert, it's going to make the news and then people are going to be less willing to go to events. And, you know, I would, today in the, the current crisis is, is a perfect example. It's, it's not so much that we, we're not able to do shows. It's that we can't get enough people that are, that are trusting enough in the system that they're going to go to a show and be safe and then return safely. That's, it's a, it's a tough thing. It's a tough line that we have to walk these days. It is. You know, I personally have been the health and safety guy on a series of film shoots in remote locations in the Western U.S. We had, you know, about 250 production people and artists, zero infections on site. I'm very proud of that. But it wasn't easy. And we did have some artists who, before they were scheduled to climb on buses and come out to our site, they did have close contact with people who were diagnosed positive with COVID-19. And so we lost some artists before they even tried to come to the site. They followed our protocol. I'm really happy that they didn't get on a bus and come to our site, but rather respected the importance of, you know, close contact means you go into quarantine. So these are difficult times. I, I don't blame anyone for scratching their heads and saying, I'm not sure what to do. But then if you're not sure, there are ample resources to find out what to do. And Chris, you know, your podcast is one of them. So I'm really pleased to have this conversation with you today. One of the things you just touched on is that zero cases were reported. And if you, that can be interpreted two ways. One can be like, well, then why did you spend so much time and effort on it if there were no cases in the first place? The way I interpret it is like, you don't even understand how hard everybody had to work to get to zero cases. Well, that's precisely it. You know, we've had this argument for years with regard to security guards. Um, You know, my, my first clients in the event industry were security guard companies, and they always complained about the same thing. The first thing cut when you have to make budget cuts, which every show does, the first thing cut is security guards. 
And the reason is, well, you had a, a incident free show last time we came here. So why do we need all these guards this time? And I had to explain, look, you idiot. The reason we had an incident free show last time is because we had all these guards. You can't have an incident free show with no precautions. The guardrails matter. And the thing about health and safety and security is when they work correctly, nothing happens. Yep. But that's the measure of success. When you can you know, focus on, on the artistic performance, on the sporting event on the field without having to think about, you know, people wearing black t-shirts and dicky shorts, you know, back of house. When you don't have to think about any of those people, that's when we, those operations people, that's when we declare victory. If yeah. we're not seen, if we're not thought about, if people are just thinking about the art or the sport, that's great. That means yep. we've done our job successfully. Every single time the artist doesn't get hit with a, with a glass bottle is a success. Right. That's the day you get to pat yourself on the back. Like nobody got hit in the face with a glass bottle. Why? Which, because we took steps to make sure there were no glass bottles. Which I will tell you, even when that does happen, does not necessarily mean that someone failed. Mm. But true. the converse is true. If you don't yeah. take precautions, you're going to have that glass bottle thrown. Exactly. Cool. So it sounds like we're, we're very much in alignment here. Let me uh, see if I can get to some of these questions so I don't take up too much of your time. Uh, the first question that came up with is going to be moving forward with touring. What sort of employer regulations are in place to make sure that uh, productions are going to be COVID compliant? Um, there aren't any. That, that is the very short answer. So I'm talking to a United States audience right now. The answer would be different in other countries, but assuming that we're talking about the US, unfortunately, until last Wednesday, at least, as we have this conversation on uh, January 26, until the Biden administration took office, there was no national plan regarding COVID-19 in any respect, um, not about distribution, enforcement, nothing. The Biden administration has some plans, but the federal government has limited authority. Under US law, and I am an attorney, so I'm familiar with this, under US law, because of the deference of many legal issues to the states, it's the concept of federalism, because of federalism, health in the United States is a state by state legal issue. So right. if you're a touring professional and you know, you're in the Midwest somewhere, the rules that apply to you in Ohio will be different than the rules in Indiana, will be different than the rules in Ohio, uh, in uh, Illinois. And then, you know, as you proceed west, there may not be rules at all because that's just how the governors of those states have, have dealt with COVID-19. So it is very much, compliance is very much gonna be a state by state issue. Okay. Period. Having said that, though, there's really a better way of framing that question. So, you know, excuse me for doing the lawyer thing and re-asking your question in a way that yields a better answer. I do not object. Yeah, thank you. Um, good quick answer. Um, 
the better course of action is not to worry about compliance with a minimum state law standard, but rather to focus on complying with the higher bar set by the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, because CDC guidance is pretty robust and it's not hard, it's not unreasonable, it's the things that we've all known since the second or third week of March. You know, I roll out of bed in the morning saying social distancing, face covering, hand washing, you know, with no spaces between those words, just like dashes. Social distancing, face covering, hand washing, none of those things is hard. They are hard to enforce all the time. And so really, I think the best answer to your question is not what does state law require, because state law may require something, may require nothing, depends on where you are. But coronavirus, like gravity, is the same everywhere. And so the procedures that you have in place on a tour bus, backstage, on a site, front of house, back of house, everywhere that you work, once we're working again, the procedures should be the same three simple procedures, social distancing, face covering, hand washing. And the key is how do you enforce them with the highest uniformity and consistency? So just to finish this thought, I know it's rambling a bit. When I have been working on site during the pandemic, it was my job to be the badass walking around making sure that people wore their face covering over their nose and under their chin, mm -hmm. not vice versa. And I wore a giant safety yellow fez. Maybe you can see it. I'll just turn my video that on. Is bright yellow. You can see it. That is a gigantic, really visible fez. So it's high vis and it was on the top of my head and people could see me, you know, probably astronauts in space could see that fez from a distance. And so people would see me walking up to them and they'd pull their face covering up properly. And then I would just, you know, give them a nod to let them know I'm watching. And at the beginning, before people would get started with their work day, I reminded them, we are all working. We are all drawing a paycheck right now during the pandemic because we've all committed to health and safety on this site ourselves and for everybody else. So if you're interested in messing that up for a lot of other people, you do you. Otherwise, there's a plan, follow it. I'm in charge of enforcing it, but we all need to be conscious of the fact that we're working because we essentially are locking arms with each other in the interest of health and safety and employment. Yeah, the, what you just said makes a lot of sense in the fact that every single production is breaking ice right now. And without that, if, if the first one fails, there's no backup to come in and start breaking the ice ahead of them because... If we lose trust in that first one, we're going to go down. You know, we have to keep having a string of constant successes to get back to where we used to be. Well, you're you're absolutely right about that, Chris, and that's why you know some of the some of the really dumb things that happened last summer, summer of 2020, are particularly upsetting. 
you know, doubtless all of your podcast listeners heard about the Chain Smokers show on Eastern Long Island. It was a drive up event that should have been a model of success. And yet, because the master of ceremonies and the, the artists decided, oh, let's let everybody out of their cars, they blew it. And doubtless oh. they blew it for other people who could have put on successful drive-in events. But now, you know, lots of people are spooked because they know, well, we can have a drive-in event, but if something goes sideways and people get out of their cars, now we don't have a drive-in, now we have a super spreader. Now we have, you know, Sturgis, South Dakota, where everybody's getting sick because they can't be bothered to think about coronavirus. Yeah. That's uh, that's the toughest one because I mean I love seeing the photos of the people being socially distanced, but as soon as the as soon as night falls, people just lose their minds. They 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 go right back to normal. Just you know, it's it's in our nature. It and, it is. Um, you know, I, I'm a football fan, both American and English, um, and I'm I'm fascinated looking at people in the stands now <clears throat> so this past weekend's nfc and afc championship games both teams had fans in the stands a lot less than full capacity and you could see that social distancing was being practiced in the stands what you couldn't see is compliance with face coverings worn the right way it was kind of spotty and yeah. I, I believe that's one of the reasons why almost all of the camera shots that showed the fans were either from a great distance or were primarily focused on the athletes on the field. And you could see kind of a blurred image of fans in the stands. You could see that they were socially distanced, but you couldn't see whether they were wearing their face coverings correctly or at all. Still images are much more accurate that like that. That's the th thank you. Thank th I, I'm thankful that they blurred them out a little bit just to kind of at least keep up the appearances that we're, that we're doing everything the way we're supposed to. I agree with that personally. I know that there is non-compliance. I don't yeah. want it thrown in my face. You know, as, as a professional in this industry, I know what I would be doing, which is walking around the stands, you know, wagging my finger and waving my fez. <laughs> but it's it's hard to do and i acknowledge yeah. that i wish that we were all had a yellow fez but that's just not the case we're not all we're not all the same you know so it's up to the people with the fezes to go around and keep reminding people you know remind uh, to mind their p's and q's another yeah. question i've been getting asked a lot is now that vaccines are starting to roll out uh, i believe that the the goal that we're aiming for is about 70% vaccinated to reach a, a level of trust that we can go back to events. Yeah. Herd immunity. Exactly. How do we monitor that? And what sort of, how do we regulate? Is that regulatable? I know that the federal government has, has very limited authority there and even state governments don't have, where does their, where do the boundaries of regulations lie there? Much like the Capitol riots, coronavirus is pointing out where systems that we have long had in place are really reliant on norms rather than enforceable rules. Yes. In, in this instance, what we're talking about here is, you know, I, I've heard it referred to as like a, a health passport or a vaccine passport. Well, yeah. 
I am fortunate enough that I just got my first vaccination Friday late at night, very early Saturday morning. And, you know, I don't know if that's the right thing to do in Arizona. The rollout of the vaccine has been pretty haphazard, but, you know, I was afforded that opportunity. And so I can say exactly what they give you when you've been vaccinated, at least here in Arizona, which is a little cardboard card. And it doesn't say much of anything. In fact, it didn't even have my name on it. I had to write my own name in pen, which means that's not a good credential. It's a credential which would be super easy to fraudulently falsify. And so I hear things about companies like Clear, the people who have the uh, airport retinal scans. Um, Clear has a, a process by which they would take your health information and use that for a credential that could be used in other places. I know they're not the only companies. I don't mean right. to you know, mention them to the exclusion of others, but there are, there are well-intentioned ideas about some kind of health credential. I'm not aware of one that is especially realistic yet. Um, frankly, I'm not worried about that yet. The thing that I'm focused on is let's get vaccines in people's arms. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any authority over that. Frankly, I don't have any authority over either of those issues, either the credential or the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So I'm just watching. I'm watching to see what is possible and when. Okay. For me, the thing that's going to matter most is let's see how long it takes until we reach that magic 70% figure. And that's going to be a local figure. You know, where I'm sitting right now in Scottsdale, Arizona, I don't know when we're going to get there, but I'm guessing that it's not going to be the same date that we reach 70% here as, I don't know, wherever you're sitting, Chris, because it's going to be different. And that's right. because the rollout of vaccines is another state-by-state -state issue. So here, old people should be getting it first, but they're not. Um, healthcare providers, older people, and teachers are getting it first. And there are mm -hmm. other people who apparently are finding ways to get it too. So who knows when we'll hit 70% immunity in any given location, but that's really okay. the issue. And just one more complication, you know, if you're just watching numbers thinking, oh, math solves this problem. Again, where I'm located, we're a tourist area. Tourists don't just come from Arizona, where I am. We bring in people from around the world. And so it's not just an issue of when does the greater Phoenix area, in my case, when does the greater Phoenix area reach 70%, you know, immunization? Because, no, we're getting people from Iowa and Montana and, and Japan and, you know, all over the world. People come to Arizona for golf and sun and, you know, desert flora and fauna. And so it's going to be event by event. And that's going to yeah. be problematic because there isn't going to be one reliable way to determine whether any individual person truly has been vaccinated. There's going to be some element of having to trust people and oh, gosh, boy. that's hard.
Oh, that is hard. That's a tough one. Um, if people are looking to get back to work and there are no state or federal regulations, but their employer has a regulation that says vaccines are mandatory to work on site. That's not a violation of any rights or anything. That's a, that's a, that's a rule that the, any employer can make. Yes. That's a rule that any employer can make. So I, I'm going to teach you and your podcast listeners just a bit of law. Now the, the rule here is called a revocable license. So when somebody enters someone else's private property, whether that's a home or a work site, they are given a license, that's the legal term, a license to be on that property. The license is revocable, it can be taken away, revoked, if the person entering someone else's property does not follow the rules of that property owner or operator of that space. You know, we all know no shoes, no shirt, no service. We all know that. Same thing with, you know, face coverings. If mm -hmm. you want to go to, uh, you know, entertainment space now, you're supposed to wear a face covering. Those are enforceable by turning someone from a licensee, someone who has a provisional right to be on premises. If they don't follow the rules of that venue, then they magically, by operation of law, turn into a trespasser. And we all know what to do with a trespasser. You trespass them off the property. So yeah, requiring that someone wear a face covering, have a vaccine, wear shoes, wear a shirt, wear high vis, wear a hard hat, those are all provisions that can be required as a condition of work. I think we all agree that that is... Uh a voluntary action on our part as an employee that if we want that job, we have to abide by the rules of the employer. One of the questions I've been getting a lot lately is does the same logic apply to the audience and attendees? Yes. Okay. Do you want a longer same answer than that? Cause it's pretty declarative. Yes. Okay. A audience members. I mean, their ticket is itself a revocable license. That's why we have fan codes of conduct. That's why we have lists of prohibited items. It's the exact same legal issue and works the exact same way. Okay, the, the money just flows the other difference. They're paying for the, the opportunity to be a guest on those premises that's still revocable. Precisely. Got it. That makes so much sense to me. I, I wish, I, I hope to get this out far and wide. One last question. I know your time is valuable. I've been getting a lot of questions about corporate immunity, and I don't think that we can apply the same logic to employees and audience in that case. I feel like an audience member might have some sort of recourse should something happen at an event that they're at, whereas I don't know if the same logic applies to the employees. So I, I'm going to use my legal skills and my teaching skills, because I'm also a law school professor, I'm going to teach you and your listeners a little law. This won't hurt a bit. Um, <laughs> it'll take like four, maybe five minutes. And this is not legal advice, but it is free and it is legal education. So if okay. you gentle listener want to, uh, you know, take a note or two, here's a lawyer telling you legal stuff. Ready, set, go. What we're talking about here is 
tort law, T-O-R-T. Tort law is the law of slip and falls and injuries to people. There are four elements to a tort. The plaintiff, the person who is saying, you did something bad, they have the burden of establishing each of the following four elements by a preponderance of the evidence. Sorry, I'm giving you legal terms fast here, but (laughs) I, I said, you know, write it down if you want to. So the plaintiff has the burden of proving the following four elements by a preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely than not, 51% likelihood. The four elements are duty. So someone, you know, the venue operator had a legal duty to provide reasonable health and safety measures. Well, that's easy because that's always true. Okay. Breach. The plaintiff must prove by preponderance of the evidence, 51%, that the operator of that event or event space breached their duty to provide reasonably safe premises. Third, the plaintiff must prove by preponderance of the evidence that the breach of that legal duty was the proximate cause of the fourth element, the plaintiff's harm, their injuries. So duty, breach, causation, and harm. Those are the four elements of a tort. The plaintiff must prove them under regular common law principles by a preponderance of the evidence, 51%. Proving something by a preponderance of the evidence is the normal legal standard for many, many things. And ordinary negligence need only be proved more likely than not, period. So back to your question, Chris. Your question was, should there be some kind of corporate immunity? Well, that's the talk among, sorry to make this political, if you don't want to hear this, you know, turn off your podcast right now, because this is going to get political right now. Corporate immunity has been an issue for many years about many different things. It is a conservative talking point. They talk about tort reform. Remember I told you we're talking about torts here. Mm -hmm. They talk about tort reform. Really what they're talking about is capping the number of dollars of damage that any plaintiff can recover for any injury, no matter how catastrophic their injury is. People who advocate for tort reform say, oh, you know, it would it would bankrupt American industry to allow large numbers of dollars to flow from corporations to people that they hurt. It's not just coronavirus. Also, during coronavirus, there has been further talk of immunizing corporations by raising that burden of proof that I keep mentioning, preponderance of the evidence, 51%, there has been talk by tort reform advocates that rather than making plaintiffs prove by a preponderance of the evidence that someone exposed them to coronavirus, rather tort reform advocates say, well, we should raise that burden of proof to clear and convincing evidence, which is 99% certainty. That's what we use in the law only for criminal cases to deprive someone of their liberty by throwing them in jail. It's a much higher standard, much harder to prove. So effectively, by requiring plaintiffs to prove that they got coronavirus by clear and convincing evidence, the practical effect of that is corporations would have immunity. 
period. However, and here's really the interesting part of all of this tort reform talk, none of it's necessary because in the context of COVID-19, proving that third element of a tort, proximate cause, is gonna be goddamn impossible. And the reason for that is stuff is open. We're able to go to the supermarket. In most places, even California now, you can pay and get a haircut. We can hang out with neighbors on the driveway or over the back fence. And so proving by either a preponderance of the evidence, much less by clear and convincing evidence, is gonna be impossible because COVID-19 is insidious. You don't show symptoms. First of all, something like 40% of people will never show symptoms. They will be completely asymptomatic per the Centers for Disease Control. But Mm -hmm. even for people who eventually do show symptoms, they are most contagious when they are still pre-symptomatic. And so proving this third element of a tort, which is required, proximate cause is virtually impossible because of the specific nature of COVID-19. So do corporations need protection from ordinary legal standards? No, no, not with regard to coronavirus because plaintiffs can't prove even a preponderance of the evidence that, that they got sick by going to an event That's just not a thing because of the insidious nature of this particular virus. It's uh, it's like going to a concert and say, well, I got a cold from that. Well, who did you get it from? I can't, I don't know exactly. Well then it was that guy right there. He had a sniffle. I know it. Yeah. It's never going to happen. So it sounds like COVID-19 is just another boogeyman in the list of boogeymen for corporate immunity. Yes. So as far as that legal issue goes, yes, it is just the latest thing, the latest, it's the latest straw man for people with a conservative agenda, you know, or, you know, an agenda that says corporations need even more protection than they already have. It's the latest thing that they can use to try to rationalize doing what they want to do anyway. But I, I, I can say with a high degree of confidence, because I've looked to see if plaintiff's lawyers are looking for plaintiff's personal injury cases based on COVID-19, and they're not. They're not because those cases are losers. They are not good cases from the plaintiff's standpoint. So Got it. I, I'm all in favor of you know, corporate jobs because they let all of us work. But in this case, protection from, you know, a raft of personal injury lawsuits, that is not a necessary thing because the law already works perfectly well without it. Right on. Thank you so much for answering all my questions. I definitely look forward to uh, having more yellow fezzed uh, COVID compliant officers on job site and reminding people. I think it's a slow progress. I think a lot of us are very, uh, resistant to change but i i think it's we're gonna have to learn much quicker to uh, to work together and trust one another yeah i agree it's a process thank, thank you so much steve i really appreciate uh, your well-informed opinions here chris you're very welcome <laughs>